It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand than to go into the unquenchable fires of hell with two hands. How seriously do you take your faith? Legitimate question, right? Do you pour your heart and soul into it from 9.31 to 11 on Sunday mornings and then forget to really wrestle with where Jesus is active in your life the rest of the week? Or is it a daily, ongoing, like, all right, Jesus, what are you doing? And can I join you in that? Don't believe the next story I'm going to tell you, okay? And don't be offended by it. During COVID, when there was all sorts of division in the world, I thought I would add to some of that division, okay? So anytime somebody cut me off in traffic or bumped into me at the grocery store or, you know, just gave me a dirty look, I would wave at them with just my middle finger on my right hand. (laughs) Now, after a while, I became convicted by that. You know, felt that nudge. James, that isn't right. You know, quick temper isn't one of the fruits of the Spirit, You need to take Jesus' word seriously. So I did. I took the middle finger and chopped off the tip of it and took him. For those who don't know the story, it happened to be an unfortunate high five with a manhole cover, and the manhole cover won. All right? I've got your attention now, though, don't I? All joking aside, Jesus invites in, he welcomes in those who are serious about their faith. We see this as we come to our next section in Scripture in this ongoing sermon series that we've titled Offensive Christianity. Who's in? Who's out? Allow me to pray, please. Lord God, uh, thank you for this group of people that can laugh. Thank you that our, our faith can be very serious and yet in the same breath, it can be something that brings us great joy. I pray, Lord, that this morning it would do both. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Grab a Bible if you've got it, or a phone or an iPad or an app, however you get to get to God's Word. There's the maroon Bibles in the chair under you if you don't have one. And turn to Mark chapter 9, verse 38. Uh, We are, like I just said, we're in this long, slow walk looking at Jesus' life story through the author Mark, right, through his eyes. Last week, we looked at how Jesus invited in. He welcomed in people who were willing to flip things upside down. We talked about Jesus talking about greatness, and I had said, while Jesus really came into his glory, his highest moments when he was at his lowest, right, when he was on the cross, Today we pick up the story right after Jesus had grabbed a a little one, a child, and put him in the middle of the disciples, him or her, this child, right? The disciples who had just been arguing about who was the greatest, and Jesus uses this kid as a a life example, a teachable moment for adults, and says, look, if you want to be great, you got to come to me like this child. Now, so picture Jesus and his 12 disciples. There's this moment where they're all like, whoa, that's deep, that's profound, I'm not sure I get it. And right after, John speaks up. Verse 38, John said to Jesus, they're in the middle of the circle with this kid in the middle of them. John said to Jesus, teacher, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons, but we told him to stop because he wasn't in our group. Don't stop him, Jesus said, and he probably shook his head too, right? No one who performs a miracle in my name will soon be able to speak evil of me. Anyone who's not against us is for us. If anyone gives you even a cup of water because you belong to the Messiah, I tell you the truth, that person will surely be rewarded. 
Now, I know I already put this in the, in the context a little bit, but let me fill it in just a little bit more. You got Jesus and his 12 plus disciples who are slowly headed to Jerusalem. They're on the way to Jesus's uh, worst day, uh, worst week in his life. Twice already, Jesus has told the disciples, I'm going to die. And twice already, the disciples are like, we have no idea what that means. Right? So over the last three years, these disciples, they've done some really good stuff with Jesus. They've cast out demons. They've healed the sick. They've proclaimed the good news. Right? They are fully in. They're deeply entrenched in Team Jesus. They have the t-shirt. All right? They're in. Now, there's been times Jesus has had to correct them a little bit. You know, he called one of them Satan after, you know, in a heated argument. He questioned their faith. He groaned, oh, how much longer do I have to hang out with these guys? And there's been times they've missed the point, but it sure seems like from all that they've been through, all that they've done, these disciples are taking Jesus following seriously. And yet in the passages we'll look at today, I see Jesus himself saying, all right, fellas, here's, here's the sand, here's a line in it, and you, if you're going to follow me, you have to step on this side of the line with me. You know, throughout this, this long uh, sermon series, which we've been in since September, I've been telling you Jesus invites in. He welcomes in everyone. But not everybody accepts the invitation. Not everybody welcomes it. But he's saying to the disciples, look, you've been with me for three years. You've got it some of the time. You haven't got it some of the time. I want to say, look, fellas, you've got to pick a side. You've got to be all in. You've got to be fully, unquestionably, undoubtedly serious about me. Because following me, he's saying, takes everything. And these first four verses really start this conversation about that being the point. All right, these first few four verses, we see that somebody not wearing the Team Jesus t-shirt has been using Jesus' name to cast out demons. And the disciples, at least John, took offense at it. But Jesus is thinking to himself, oh, guys, look, in the next couple of weeks, everybody in the land is going to have to choose a side. It's either going to be with me or against me. So he says to the disciples, to John, don't stop him. No one who performs a miracle in my name will soon be able to speak evil of me. Anyone who's not against me is for me. If anyone gives you a cup of cool water because you belong to the Messiah, I tell you the truth, that person will surely be rewarded. If you're not against us, Jesus said, you're for us. Pick a side. All right, how many of you have ever heard of Bloomsday? We're going to practice raising our hands because we're going to raise them later. If you haven't, or if you're watching online and you live somewhere else, Bloomsday is a 10K race in Spokane that's pretty big doings. All right, 12K? I, sorry, I can't count. It's a long road race with 50,000 other people that you have to try and elbow and nudge while they're passing you, all right? That's a 12K. Uh, answer me this. The little child on the side of the road on Doomsday Hill who has her family's cooler open and is handing out chilled water, is she cheering for you? No. She's not. I mean, it feels good to think so, but she's cheering for her dad who passed you at mile one, by the way. But mom told her to hand out all the chilled waters before she goes. So she's, here you go, good job, here you go. She's not cheering for you. But wait, she's not against you, is she? And she's giving you a cup of cool water, so maybe that means she's for you. At least that's kind of what Jesus is saying. Look, everybody's going to have to pick a side. It's either going to be me or it's not going to be me. You've got to be serious about me. I hear him saying this in large part due to the next several verses that we look at. 
We're in chapter 9 still of Mark's gospel, verse 42. But if you cause one of these little ones who trusts in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone hung around your neck. Pretty straightforward. I mean, it might look a little something like that. Good picture, Tim. It's very clear. I appreciate that. Little ones. Jesus could have very easily just looked down at the kid who's still in the middle of the circle and been thinking of them. Now, scholars have said over the years, well, he could have also been thinking that this is anybody new in their faith. Either way, the point is taken. Because when Jesus said, you'll have a millstone, it's better if you had a millstone tied around your neck, the disciples would have pictured what was happening in that day and age. Because the Romans, who were the occupying nation, they had multiple different ways to torture and punish people. And tying a large rock around their neck and dropping them in a lake was one of those ways. Two types of millstones in Palestine in those days, small ones that women, and I'm not trying, this is, this is culturally appropriate, they, they would grind the grain in the house with the small millstones. And then the other type of millstone were the big ones like this, that it took at least a full-grown donkey, if not more, to actually move it. When Jesus said was he did, what he did in verse 42, the Greek uses the word for large millstone. All right? Historian Josephus records a failed coup attempt where the Romans who were in charge did not have, they weren't overthrown, and every one of the misfits who tried to overthrow them in this unsuccessful coup attempt got rocks tied around their neck and thrown into the lake. Jesus says, look, if you cause any of these little ones, whether it's the kids or whether it's new believers to sin, to walk away from him, it'd be better for you if you you get what he said, right? Let's keep going. Verse 43 to 46. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand than to go into the unquenchable fires of hell with two hands. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter eternal life with only one foot than to be thrown into hell with two feet. Was Jesus being serious here? not a single scholar that I read said that you should cut off your hand or your foot. But every single scholar said this was Jesus showing how serious it meant to follow him. Sin causes a person to walk away from God, even if it's just for a brief time. And Jesus, as our vision statement says, wants to walk with us, not have us walk away from him. So again, he says, how serious are you? And Jesus keeps going in verse 47 to 48. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. That just sounds painful. Uh, it's better to enter the kingdom of God with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the maggots never die and the fire never goes out. Now we know from another gospel account that the people in that day, they viewed the eyes as the passageway to the soul. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. He said, your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. If your eyes are a passage to the soul, then take serious what they're seeing. I mean, these two verses, 47 and 48, are, the, are making the same point the last several have made. If anything is causing you to sin, put it behind you. 
Turn away from it. Wander away. Get rid of it. Jesus is saying, you got to count the cost, which he did in Luke 14. He was saying, look, is your phone causing you to look at inappropriate things? Shut it down. Is the, the, the trunk-or-treat candy in your office drawer, I might be projecting a little bit, causing, <laughs> causing gluttony? Throw it out. If Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all those other things are causing you to be jealous of other people's lives, click the power button. Jesus is saying if something is causing you to, to place something else in a higher priority than him, then get rid of it. Make sure that, that you have him first. If you don't, it's idol worship. Now, on a side note, Lent, the season we're in from Ash Wednesday to Easter, is a great time to actually take serious some of this getting rid of things. And as you get rid of them, then you can take time to lament, which we're trying to do in these 46 days. Lament the fact that something else captured your heart more than Jesus. And you know what Jesus is going to do? He's going to welcome you right back with open arms. He's going to say, I love you, child. He's not going to scold you. He's not going to flick you on the forehead. He's just going to welcome you with open arms. Back to our story, because Jesus isn't done quite yet. With the men in the circle... The kid probably still there wondering, how much longer do I have to be here? Because this seems like a grown-up object lesson. Right? Jesus continues this teachable moment, verse 49 and 50. For everyone will be tested with fire. Salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? You must have the qualities of salt among yourselves and live in peace with each other. Man, we could spend like a month looking at just those two verses. There's so much in there. Verse 49, uh, you know, if you're following of him, it's going to be tested. Verse 50, the front half of it, stay salty. Verse 50, the last half of it, come on, fellas, grow up. Get along, right? Verse 49, pretty self-explanatory. If you choose to follow Jesus, life won't be easy. Even if you don't follow Jesus, life won't be easy. If you haven't figured that out, you're going to be tested. All right, the front half of verse 50, the stay salty part, well, I know not everybody was at a wedding that took place two Fridays ago, but I'd like to just have Ryan and Stacy stand up. Let's give them a round of applause because they're now married. <laughs> Woohoo! And I thought to myself, wouldn't it be great if I had a picture of the wedding, like a selfie that maybe we took, and I could put it up on the screen? I forgot. I'm sorry. So this is even better. All right? Now, those that were able to be there, the seating was limited. Otherwise, Ryan and Stacy would have invited everybody, right? Yeah. Just say yes. Okay, makes everybody feel better. The seating was limited, but I encourage them in the, in the kind of the funeral message to stay salty. All right, now for those who know that phrase, if you're under the age of like 25, yeah, I know, I, I encourage them to stay salty. Uh, Urban Dictionary says stay salty means to stay cranky. <laughs> stay mad, stay angry. I was not encouraging them to do that. Okay, I was encouraging them to do what Jesus was talking about, to look at the qualities of salt. And to keep those qualities, like safety and healing and preservation and bringing out the best flavors of each other, that's the Cliff Note version of the, the wedding message. I should have just gone with that because it would have been a lot quicker, huh? They even entered into a salt covenant. If you don't know what that is, ask them about it later. All right? Ultimately, what I was saying and telling them to stay salty was that stay serious about what they were entering into. And that's the first half of verse 50. Now, the last half, and live at peace with one another. All right, let's keep this in context. This is, something's funny over there. It's the stay salty phrase, isn't it? I'm sorry. No? You can tell me later. All right. Where was I? Last half, in context. Here we go. Uh, verses 33 to 50, 
This entire episode is one extended episode. And at the beginning of that episode, remember what was happening? The disciples were arguing about which of them was the greatest. So at the end of all this, Jesus has some powerful teaching. And at the end of it, he looks at his disciples and says, just grow up. Get along. I mean, he says it in a much more Jesus-like type way. Live at peace with each other. I think at that point is when he's flicking them on the forehead. You guys are knuckleheads. We got bigger problems coming. We still tracking? We're on the same page still? We just talked about a wedding, which is an ideal segue to the next section. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 12. Then Jesus left Capernaum and went down to the region of Judea and into the area east of the Jordan River. Once again, crowds gathered around him, and as usual, he was teaching them. So Pharisees came and tried to trap Jesus with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them with a question. What did Moses say in the law about divorce? Well, he permitted it, they they replied. He said a man can give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away. And Jesus responded, he wrote this commandment only as a concession to your hard hearts. Verse 6, but God, and this is a quote, God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Verse 10, later when Jesus was alone with the disciples in the house, they brought up the subject again. And he told them, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries someone else, she commits adultery as well. What a passage. Now I'm guessing that at some point in your lives, you have heard a sermon on this passage or two, right? I'm guessing that not all of these sermons left you with warm fuzzies. I'm going to take a risk here. Don't raise your hand yet, okay? But let me finish the entire question. If you have been personally affected by divorce or you know somebody who has been affected by divorce, I'm going to ask that you raise your hand, okay? So if you have been personally affected or you know somebody who's been personally affected by divorce, go ahead and raise your hand. For those watching online, that is just about everybody in here. Divorce, I probably shouldn't say that word in church. Uh, Divorce is terrible, Whether you've been in a marriage that ended, you've been personally affected by it, you know somebody that's affected by it, divorce breaks God's heart because divorce causes pain in humanity. And God doesn't like pain. He's not some sadistic, like, I want them to hurt. God grieves the pain that humanity feels. So listen, I'm not going to stand up here and preach a sermon on divorce, as I'm not so sure that's what Mark, who wrote this about 1950 years ago, would have wanted me to do. I think over the years, there have been some pastors who have taken this, this, this text and preached it very well. And there's been others who have preached it very, very poorly. I don't think it's necessarily a passage on divorce. If we keep it in the context, which we have to do whenever we're studying Scripture, we have to realize this is Jesus continuing the lesson of you've got to take your faith seriously. You have to pick a side. Stay with me, okay? Don't write me off quite yet. Mark chapter 10, verse 1. Then Jesus left Capernaum and went down to the region of Judea and into the area east of the Jordan River. Once again, crowds gathered around him, and as usual, he was teaching them. Not a trick question. Where did Jesus go in verse 1? 
to the Jordan River, to Judea. Uh, who else used to work there? Used to hang out in that area? Anybody? John the Baptist, right? Oh, man, that guy was big doings. I mean, he made it into like the first five verses, the first seven verses of Mark's story about Jesus. Mark chapter one, verse four and five. The message was from John the Baptist, or the messenger was. He was in the wilderness and preached that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. All of Judea, there's location, including all the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. The two specific places that were mentioned in Mark chapter 10, verse 1. Now, John the Baptist was big doings back then. I mean, he, he was the hot ticket to go out and hear what he was saying and, you know, to, to pay attention. He generated a lot of press, and not all of it was good press. Which takes us to verse 2. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? Who remembers how John the Baptist died? Hey, yeah, don't say it, James. Don't say it. Just hand motions are good enough. Okay? Yeah, he died. He had his head cut off by Herod in conjunction with Herod's wife, in conjunction with Herod's wife's daughter, because John was initially arrested because he was, well... He was making a fuss about Herod's marital status. He was. You want to read the whole story? Mark chapter 6, verse 14 to 30. Here's the deeper dive as to how this feud fits into what we're talking about today. This power couple and John the Baptist. The guy's name was Herod Antipas. Okay? He was a supposed, supposedly a Jewish ruler. Not everybody liked him. Jesus didn't really like him, although Jesus loved everybody. Um, Herod Antipas had been, had been, had been, had been, okay, catch this, had been married to a woman named Phasaelus, daughter of Eratos IV, who was an Arab leader. He divorced her in order to marry Herodias. Herodias had been married to Herod Antipas' brother named Philip. Herodias divorced Philip in order to marry Herod. Track it with me? Okay, I'm going to make sure it's extremely obvious. If you don't get it yet, you will by the end of it. In verse 2, the, 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 the Pharisees ask Jesus a, a question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? It's the same topic that got John in trouble. In the same location that got John in trouble. So if Jesus says the wrong thing, there's potential that things won't end well with him. This whole situation is very similar to, and I credit the pastor across the pond who used this analogy, it's very similar to if a reporter had asked uh, a priest in England in the mid-1990s about divorce. This is when Prince Charles and Princess Diana were going through their uh, their divorce. If a reporter had come to a priest and said, what's your take on divorce? It wasn't because the, the reporter was necessarily interested in a godly understanding of, of marital vows. It's because he wanted to be able to write something in the papers that would sell papers. It would be on the front page. This is what's going on here. These Pharisees are coming to Jesus saying, <laughs> what's your thoughts on divorce? in the same place where John the Baptist got arrested. Now, Jesus was a smart guy. Amen? 
Felix, you missed your opportunity. That wasn't amen for you, buddy. Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus answered them with a question. What did Moses say in the law about divorce? Well, he permitted it. They replied, there's the amen. I was waiting for that. He said a man can give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away. This was standard practice for religious people in the public setting. If you want to debate something, you debate it with with scriptural references. So Jesus asked the, uh, the Pharisees, this is ironic. This whole thing is dripping with irony. I see Jesus pushing the Pharisees to say, let me ask you a question how serious you are about your faith and who you follow. Do you follow the law or do you follow God? Do you follow the law or do you follow the person who gave the law? Now, I don't think Jesus would have said to the Pharisees, fellas, like he says to his disciples, at least how I think he says it, I think he would have been more polite. Gentlemen, I think he would have said. Gentlemen, go back further than Moses. Go all the way back to what God said and did in the very beginning. Two become one. It's holy. It's God-ordained. It's blessed. And if God said and did this... Shouldn't we take that more seriously than what Moses, however many hundreds of years later, wrote as a concession to you? That's the James International understanding of this passion, this passage, James being me, if you didn't know. The Pharisees couldn't have gotten, well, they could have got him mad at him. They couldn't have had him arrested because this is typical public discourse between, between religious leaders. They wouldn't have debated what God said and did in Genesis 2.24. So Jesus says, come on, you want to go? Let's go. They couldn't have done that. And there would have been no tabloid writer who would have had anything that would have been scathing that would have put Jesus in the papers and it would have made its way back to Herod. So again, I think Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, do you trust God more than the rules that you claim to live by? Are you With me, or are you not? Are you taking your faith seriously? I think he's saying that. In the public setting. Now, in the private setting, the text says later on, when they were in a house, the disciples brought this up again. This is the disciples saying, can you unpack that a little bit more, Jesus? So Jesus says something to them that would have been treasonous and would have got him arrested a few moments earlier. He said to them in verse 10, 11, and 12, later when he was alone with his disciples in the house, they brought, him, they brought up the subject again, and he told them, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries someone else, she commits adultery. Friends, this is a direct jab at Herod and Herodias. This is a direct comment about them in the quietness of their house. Episcopalian Bishop N.T. Wright says that Jesus, of course, can spot a trap a mile off, but he loses no integrity in how he deals with it. In the public, a debate about the meaning of different scriptural texts, but in private, a sharp and direct comment to the disciples, including what amounts to a specific reference to the power couple. And he doesn't say it like that. I'm saying it like that. To the power couple in charge. Herod Antipas and Herodias did the adultery exactly as Jesus said not to do it in verses 11 and 12. Exactly as described. Kind of changes how we read the text, or, or at least it adds another element to how we read the text. Now this can be a standalone scripture. 
about this topic of divorce. And it's got truths that we can learn from, but if we, if we keep it in the context of the story that's being told, in the context of the region in which it's being told and lived out, in the last three years worth of life, and especially in the last couple of days where Jesus is saying, you've got to take me serious if we do all of that, then I see the end of chapter 9 tying directly in with the beginning of chapter 10 and Jesus saying, look, I want to invite you to follow me, but if you do, you've got to take your faith seriously. You have to pick a side. It's either going to be Jesus or it's not. That's what I see Jesus saying. That's what I see these two texts saying to us. And there's going to be countless other sermons about these two texts that are going to be just as, uh, hopefully, just as biblically accurate. So if you didn't like this one, go listen to one of those. I won't be offended. I started this morning asking, how seriously do you take your faith? And then I told you, don't believe a story. I told you about how I lost my fingertip. I do want you to believe this. Jesus invites everyone into relationship with him. He welcomes them. Not everybody accepts the invitation, but to those who do, he says, look, you got to take it serious. You have to take it serious. He was serious enough with his whole endeavor to give his life for us. So as we move into a time where we celebrate communion, I want us to each take a look at how serious we are in our faith. Our faith can be extremely serious and extremely fun and life-giving. It was part of a prayer earlier. So we don't just have to be miserable, but we have to be determined that this whole Jesus thing is really what we're in for. As the worship team comes forward, If you've never responded to Jesus' invitation to follow him, if today's the first day you've really heard, oh, he wants relationship with me, I encourage you, take him up on that offer. But know that just because you're following Jesus, you're not going to be healthy, wealthy, and everything's going to go good. Okay, don't forget verse 49 of chapter 9, everyone will be tested with fire. I'm not trying to scare you away from making a decision to follow Christ, whether you're online or in the house. I'm just trying to make sure that I don't cause you to sin and get that millstone tied around my neck. All right? We want to enter our faith journey with Jesus seriously. And if you've never done that, it's simple. Jesus, I'm in. I recognize I, I, I'm, I'm falling short, I'm failing, and I need you. I'm taking this seriously enough to answer your invitation. Now, if you start this journey today, let me know, whether you're online or in-house. Shoot me an email, a text. Let somebody know, because as our vision statement says, we want to walk with you as you walk with Christ. I want to invite the ushers who helped serve offering to come on forward. Uh, They're going to help pass out the elements. You don't have to be a member here at First Church to take communion with us. We just simply ask that you be seeking a relationship with Jesus.